Thank you for joining Just Around the Corner with Dennis Mansfield. As John Hay, one of the most famous men of the 19th century, once said, all the great prizes in life are just around the corner. Let's go there together. Hi, I'm Dennis Mansfield, and I'm honored to have you with us on this episode of Just Around the Corner. You know, I am a business coach. I have the opportunity to be an author and a business consultant. But today's show is primarily just focused on the concept of you as a coach. And you're going to say, wait, no, you just said you're the coach. I am indeed. But I have this belief based on all the years, now decades, of coaching men and women in business and in life that most people do not realize that they are accidental coaches. They are about people's lives. They're involved in different aspects of business or ministry or non-governmental activity where it's nonprofit, it's helpful. And they don't realize, most of us don't realize, that what we're doing while we're in those activities is that we're coaching others. So on today's show, I just want to be able to encourage you that when it happens and you find yourself, oh, well, heavens, I, I am indeed coaching, then I'll give you a couple tools that will help you. See, it, it's, for me, it started that I was an Air Force brat, one of seven children living with my mom and dad all over the world. And it was wonderful to be in Germany and to travel to different places and Bavaria and, and then to the United States, all over the United States, Texas, Michigan. I was born in Washington, D.C., and at a certain point, I, as every child has, when they're writing down where their birthplace is, they're like, I wonder if you hadn't lived there for a while, I wonder what that's like. I'd like to go see that. And as a young 10 or 11-year-old boy, I had a newspaper route in a small suburb of Detroit, Michigan. It was called Mount Clemens. And I had an opportunity through that particular newspaper to win a trip to Washington, D.C. I thought, hey, I'm never getting there with mom and dad because they never had enough money and they had too many kids. And so uh, we decided, you know, my brothers and sisters and I, they, they were a great encouragement to me, go out and try and win this particular contest, which I did. So many new starts. And as a budding entrepreneur, it was not easy, but it was simple for me to be able to go out and get those new starts and win the trip to D.C., so there I was for the first time at age 10 or 11, walking the streets of Washington, D.C. with a group of other tourist young boys. And this is in the mid-1960s. And I remember at the time thinking, this is amazing. This is how our government is. This is the bigness of our nation. It expanded my, my vision of what our country was. And in the process of it, I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of the other young boys. There were no newspaper girls at that time. And we talked about what we did in business and how we, so you get this little, you know, microcosm of business potential uh, entrepreneurs that were making money. When I got back to Mount Clemens, Michigan, after the trip uh, to Washington, I remember reading about different historical characters that had huge impact on the nation. And if I allowed it to be, huge impact on me. And I remember coming across uh, Thomas Edison. And I thought, my heavens, 
This is a young Michigan boy who, who grew up and by the time he was 15, had the opportunity to be a candy shark. Now, what is that? In the old days, when trains took people to cities for the opportunity of working, day shifts and then moving back, as we would think subways do today, Thomas Edison was a 15-year-old kid who made a decision that he would sell candy on this train. They called them candy sharks. And he would go down the aisles and he'd talk to people, business people. He'd pick up tips. He'd hear things. But I, most amazing to me was that when he got done and, and they dropped off all of the people there in Detroit for the different auto plants, he would get back on and then do the same thing going the other way. And he did this several times throughout the day. On one of his trips, actually, in the city of Mount Clemens, the train had stopped. He was out of candy and newspapers and pastries, etc. And he jumped off in order to go get those and then to come back onto the, onto the train. And in the process of having done that, he was wa- walking down and he saw off to the side in the track area uh, uh, a little boy, a little toddler. Uh, the toddler was playing on the tracks and... And you can imagine the panic of any young teenage boy or girl seeing that. And then he saw the train coming. This is a true story, ladies and gentlemen. It's a true story. And young Al Edison, he didn't go by Thomas. He went by his first part of his middle name, Alva. Al Edison saw the train locomotive coming at the little boy. And he threw his stuff down and he ran as if the sport of football was already engaged in his life, which it was still just a budding sport. But he tackled that little boy, tackled him off of the tracks, rolled off, the train came through. It would have absolutely annihilated the life of that child. Edison, by dropping all those things, destroyed his supposed livelihood as a, as a teenager. But he picked the little boy up and he was like, whose little kid is this? Turned out to be the station manager's man named James U. McKenzie. And when he did that, Mr. McKenzie came out and was just, you can imagine the fear of a parent involved in that. He came over and grabbed his little boy, Jimmy, and thanked Al. Said, whatever you, whatever you need, I will do. How can I help you? So Al Edison, teenage boy, former, soon-to-be former candy shark, said, would you teach me telegraphy, the telegraph? And then, of course, Mr. McKenzie said, absolutely. And he began the process of mentoring and teaching. And Edison would live there at the McKenzie's house. And he grew up over a year, two-year period of time, learning things, so much so that he excelled past every other telegrapher that was employed by that particular Grand Trunk Railway, which was the railway that took the people back and forth. And he started thinking, this little boy, this little entrepreneur, young man, began to see his future. And it was McKenzie who coached him towards that. See, each of us have a McKenzie in our life, a James McKenzie. The question is, are we James McKenzie's to other people? Well... I can tell you that 
as I left those years, those childhood years, I decided that I would go to work in a capacity that uh, had different jobs, different opportunities, I found that I would bump into possible James U. McKenzie's. Not necessarily always good ones. Sometimes they gave me examples like you've had in your life of people who really shouldn't be bosses. But even at those times, I remember thinking, there's a reason why he shouldn't be a boss. There's a reason why I don't want to be like that boss. And so it was that I went into high school, college, and then out of college, um, I had an opportunity as a young graduate to work in a particular uh, political party that I was involved in down in the heart of Los Angeles. And a man came into my, uh, into my office, just literally walked through the door, and he said, hey, uh, I know this sounds odd, but I have been praying for God to send me to someone who needs help in their life. And I sort of sat back and I said, well, sit out. You're at the right spot. And as a newly, fairly newly married man, I came to the conclusion that I didn't have it together, uh, either with uh, the marriage or with really where I wanted to go in life. This man, Tom Harris, sat with me and spoke to me. And he said, hey, you know what? Um, If you ever want to rent a house behind a house, I'm not too far from where you live right now because we talked about in Pleasantries where we each lived. And so I decided, okay, I'll consider it. And in talking with my sister, in talking with my wife and then to my sisters and my brothers and talking about geography and where where would be a good place to live, uh, Susan and I, my wife, decided we would move there. He became a mentor to me and met with me on a regular basis. We began attending a Bible study, began looking at the greater things of life. Fast forward. I went into business. I did all these things. And all of a sudden, I realized I owned a company with a business partner, and I really had no clue as to what I was doing. I knew I didn't want to work for somebody, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the person desiring that is, in fact, a good employer. And uh, I hired a CFO, a man named Peter, Peter Gazdek. And Peter came into my life where Tom had coached me up on the things of value, morality, ethics. Uh, Peter came in to challenge me about good, the application of that to business, to life, to your marriage, to your, to your uh, desire to impact the world around you, around us. And, and all of a sudden, I had the second dose of a coach who cared about me. And for a number of years, we met. Even to today, four, decade, four decades later, uh, Peter Gazdek remains my business coach and my mentor. Tom has passed away. So I, I suddenly realized, wait a minute, what these men have given to me, I must give to other people. And when I did, my life changed. You see, I found that if we were able to sit and listen to people, we might just have an opportunity to ask them questions about why they do what they do. Not necessarily always expecting an answer that they'll know why they do it, 
But we can certainly ask, what has been the result of, of what they did? How did that impact their life? Where did that take them? Even if the why question was unanswerable. And as about uh, the early 90s, I was asked by an organization called Focus on the Family to become the executive director of a group that worked in association with Focus on the Family. And as such, I was able to start meeting with businessmen, legislators. Uh, we had volunteers and pastors. That I, was, I found myself coaching them like Peter coached me, like Tom coached me. So my question is, in your life, who are the men, who are the women that you began just meeting with, talking with, in a sense mentoring, but truly coaching? See, we think of coaching merely as a whistle and a baseball cap, and you're out with soccer or football or baseball or rugby or lacrosse, whatever. Uh, that certainly is the obvious form of coaching. But the truth of coaching is giving, as Boise State University's former head coach Skip Hall, a longtime friend of ours and a great uh, human being, talked about coaching people up, coaching them up towards the, the best things that happen in their life or can happen in their life. And so for me, I decided... I'm going to start doing that on a regular basis. And about um, well over 20 plus years ago, I became a business coach. And I, and I put my shingle out, and people came from all around, uh, both here in our state as well as other states, that would call me on the phone and I would, I would work with them. And what I found was, though not all businesses are the same, and certainly I was focusing on a business, as a, as a business coach, on business. The principles behind dealing with the people are exactly the same. And that is that the hardest, most difficult thing to overcome is when a business doesn't work well with its people. In other words, the owner doesn't get who the people are. The manager doesn't realize who it is he's managing, who he's coaching who you've been coaching. Now think about the irregular people in your own life. I want you to stop just for a second and maybe close your eyes. Just think, who is it in my past that I knew I had to work with, but man, I did not like working with that person. That man or woman drove you nuts. And you have to stop and be real with yourself. Because a lot of times we'll say, well, they were, you know, it was a bad day, a bad year, a bad decade. But the truth of the matter is that they were absolutely a pain in your tush. You sat there every day and said, I hope that person doesn't come in. Or when they come in, you would think, gosh, I can't wait till they leave. And maybe inside there was a part of you that said, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like that. Well, in my own world of coaching, I found that unless I had a construct of understanding behavior, that I was only guessing at what those men or those women were or were not doing. And so I went through an incredible coaching program called the Sandler Sales Management Program, which is based on Jewish thought. Now it's not religious, but it's based on the Jewish cultural business thought. How, how can we get to know behavior types when they just come at us and we're in the shop? One of the successful things is 
I take people to Israel on a fairly frequent basis over the years and have since 1995, is that going into the marketplace in the Jewish community in Israel is, a, is an amazing thing to do. Not because of the color, the smells, the sights, but because of the interaction with the businessmen. See, the, the, the Jewish mindset, the Sandler system, was one of asking questions. Very Socratic. In its nature, what are you here for? What are you looking for? And then seeking the pain of that person. Well, that's all well and good if you know or have a relationship with that person that you happen to be coaching, uh, working with, a potential client. But if you don't know, there had to be a way of learning quickly and deeply about that individual's behavior. Through the Sandler system, and through Jim Stevens, who is a business coach for me, who is one of the top five men in my life who have impacted me, I came to realize that I had to become a bit of a ninja on a behavioral uh, overview system. Well, I've talked about it in past seasons, but I want to focus as we kind of come in for a closing on this issue of coaching coaches as to what's the, the right rule book, what's the right... Uh, Direction, the tactics, and that comes down to the disc. See, the disc is a behavioral assessment that deals with dominant, intuitive, steady relator, and a calculator behavior pattern. Not what their potential is, no, but what do people do? Now, let me unpack that quickly. The dominant, of course, is that person that walks in the door that says, hey, I'm in charge. Uh, They don't even have to say it, really. They just take charge. And they're literally picking up things, moving, come on, you guys, come on, let's go, let's get this done. They can't help it. That's their life. They have done that since they were little boys selling newspapers. Uh, they, they are just dominant. You've met them and I've met them. Their greatest fear is being taken advantage of. So if you've ever been around someone that you think is dominant, and, and they have shown you, you're not taking advantage of me, are you? That's where they live. The second one is the intuitive. It's the happy-go-lucky person. You've seen them in classes. You may, in fact, be one. You just walk in, and you're the center of the party. You're the one that people are, they gravitate towards. Oftentimes, there'll be a wit, a sense of humor that's a part of that. But truly, they're seeing everything around them in a way, while they're looking at you, that most people go, how did you do that? They're wired that way. Their behavior is that way. And they oftentimes can have a sense of humor uh, that brings them to being comedians. Well, comedians in life, truly, not comedians necessarily in entertainment, but in in entertainment, there can be people like Robin Williams and others who are high-eye, and they would just be funny. Well, the greatest fear of a high eye is not being liked. Now think about that. Especially if you're a high D, you don't care whether people like you or not. You're going to get the job done. But a high eye, intuitive, is like, are they liking me? Did I say something? And if we know that we're dealing with somebody like that, we can coach them up with a sense of, hey, everything's fine. I like you. It's good to be with you. And then, of course, the tensions drop. The greatest fear, remember, on the D 
was being taken advantage of. To coach up somebody like that, it's like saying the obvious, I'm not taking advantage of you. I'm just helping you with this. It lowers the tension. D, I. The third one is the idea of S, the steady relator. Well, the steady relator is another, uh, another word for it would be loyal. They're the man or the woman that absolutely uh, is there. You can count on them. You can count on them at work. If you happen to go to church, you count on them for church. If you're involved in a baseball league, they're going to be the ones uh, with the ledger. They're the ones that have everything uh, all set. They're always going to be there. They're going to be there early. The S, a steady relator, loves patterns. They love rhythms. The high S says, we always have done it this way. The high D looks at them and says, yeah, so what? It doesn't work. The high I says, well, that's cool, but let's change it. The S is like, no, because the greatest fear of a high S is change. They don't want it. They don't want change. They'll be the person that works 20, 30, 40 years in a job because that's what you're supposed to do. Greatest fear is change. Then let's look at the C. The C is the calculator. That's the man or woman that just absolutely loves mathematics, order, and logic. They're not Mr. Spock from Star Trek at all, but they could be. They're not necessarily uh, a bean counter, but they could be. You see, it is the behavior that says, well, this type of pen is the pen I always buy uh, because it's got the finest point to it. And when I'm doing ledger comments, I can, whatever. The truth of the matter is, they're not loyal to this pen. They just know that it works. Whereas the, the S would say, I just love these pens. They don't even know why. The C knows exactly why. And they are solving problems. They are coming to a right answer. Now, in coaching C's, there's a strange reality. They sound like they're D's. They're oftentimes loud and that's the way it is because that's the answer about this. And you're looking at them thinking, oh, but the minute you confront a high C with their data being incorrect, they they crumble like a folding chair. And when that happens, you realize there's no dominance in them. There's only a desire for being right all the time. Now, the greatest fear, therefore, would be what? Being wrong? Not necessarily. See, a, a high C will, will look at it and go, uh, I believe this is accurate. Will you take a look at it? The person looks at it. No, no, you're in error on this point and that point. They'll go, okay, great, let me fix that. They'll turn around, they'll fix it, and then they'll resubmit it. Then, if someone comes and says, you're not right, it's wrong, they go ballistic. Because in their mind, there's no way that it could be wrong because they double and triple checked it. So their greatest fear is that they're not right. Because they have to be right and everything. And you've met them. You're sitting, talking with someone who traveled with you someplace who's a high C. And there's a third party. And you're telling them about a story that the two of you on your trip had. And you say, it was so great. We left on a Tuesday. And, and then they interrupt. It was a Wednesday. 
We left on a Wednesday. And it was so great because we left at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We left at 9 in the morning. On and on and on. It sounds like they're correcting you at every step. They're just making sure that it's right. Whereas a D would be correcting, you're going to get this right. Da, 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 da. The C is just being accurate. So when we know those things about people who come into our lives, we're able to coach them in a far better way, in an accurate version, in an opportunity to go, oh, okay, now I get you. So, so when you are uh, coaching either accidentally or on purpose, coaching people. If you'll deal with the pain of their life, the high D, not wanting to be taken advantage of, the high I, not being liked, the high S, change, and the high C, not being right, you're able to mitigate those problems quickly. And you see that we all see that in others. The key is to say, now, where is it in ourselves? Which one do you fit in? Are you a dominant? Are you an intuitive? Are you a steady relator? Are you a calculator? And then realize, in order to coach up people, employees, uh, be a good father, a good mother, a good grandfather, a good mother, grandmother, to be able to look and see that that human being is, falls into one of those four categories. Now, we all have bits and pieces of all those in us, but the predominant category is a D or an I or an S or a C. Then we're able to, at that point, say, ah, I hear where they're coming from. The greatest fear is being taken advantage of. So you mitigate that by going, you know, Bob, uh, I really don't want to even be seen as taking advantage of because that's not where I'm at. What I do want to do is help you, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, the guy's tension is down. He's like, well, he's already admitted he doesn't want to do that. Okay, I'll listen to him. Or, you know, Sheila, I really do like the way you uh, do this and that and that and your performance of your duties. Suddenly, Sheila is sitting there going, huh, he, he is a good guy. He likes me. He really likes me. And once you have that, there is such an incredible opportunity for you to impact lives. To, as I began this episode, I will be ending it, to coach coaches. You see, if, if all we're to do in our life is to have the opportunity to help people uh, uh, create better widgets, okay, that's good. It's not great. To be great is to change their lives so that they could be life changers with other people. See, people are choking all around us in their life. It's like candy is stuck in their throat and everything they want to do, they can't do because they're choking. It's the reason why the company Lifesavers put a hole in their candy so that if it ever did get caught, in a young child's throat, they could still breathe. It wasn't just that it looked like a, you know, a boy that you would throw in the water to save someone's life. It was literally save someone's life. And so in our life, if we can see that we have something far better that will save their life, which is encouragement, 
opportunity, change, then all of a sudden, we're doing far more than increasing the amount of widgets that are produced in your job, in your ministry, in your nonprofit, in your life. You're literally changing the people's lives around you. And for that, there could not be a better thing that happens. Let me return to Al Edison, who, after he began the process of, as a, as a young man, businessman, creating unbelievable inventions, he opened up an amazing warehouse and factory and discovery center in Orange, New Jersey. And he was making so much money that he needed someone to help him organize different scientific experiments. And he went back to Mount Clemens, Michigan. And he asked James U. McKenzie to join him. You see, he then mentored Mr. McKenzie, the very man who started him off at that early age in his teens that gave him the chance to succeed. Mr. McKenzie then stayed with the older version of Thomas Alva Edison. And he was the only one that called him Al, by the way. Everybody called him Tom or Thomas. Because he had a deeper, more profound impact on, that, on Edison's life and Edison on his life. So who are you the Edison to? And who are you the McKenzie to? I would argue that they're out there. You've got to think deeper, think more purposely, and then reach out and get to know them. If you're interested, I'd love to hear from you. And the best way for you to contact me regarding coaching is to go to DennisMansfield.com, DennisMansfield.com, and then click on and let me know that you're interested. Also, when you go to that website, there's a landing page with a little yellow bar about five secrets to a long marriage. Click on that, whether you're married or not. Click on that. Uh, we'll send you some free information about how to improve using these same coaching methods in relationships with the opposite sex. And you'll be a recipient of our regular newsletter that comes out twice a month. Uh, good things, things that will help you, not time-sucking things, but things that give you the opportunity to grow as a human being, as a businessman or woman, as a mom, dad, husband, wife. So with that, I want to just uh, let you know that it has been an honor in this episode to share with you just one-on-one -on -one about my life, the things that changed me, and the things that I'm using to change others. So with that, God bless you. Have a great rest of the day. <laughs>